Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Dr. Mark Faber, the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. Uh, legendary investor, will be very familiar to a lot of my audience, although this is the first time I've had him on the show ever. So fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Really, you know, the same questions I always ask, which is where are you putting cash right now and why? And then I pull on threads from there. With Dr. Faber, we ended up with a very international portfolio. He's got a lot of exposure in a couple emerging markets. So what I wanted to talk about with him was, you know, I, I often have guests on the show and they talk about the importance of international diversification and they say, oh, I've got investments in Singapore and then <laughs> Colombia or wherever. And, and that's great. But what I wanted to get from Mark was, how does the average retail investor who has exposure to, you know, North American equities and they've got that maybe some real estate close to home, but they want exposure international. They'd love to have some exposure to an emerging market like like Colombia or, or Singapore or some of these. I mean, some of the countries that Mark's looking at, Uzbekistan, Iraq, you know, very, very uh, questionable from a risk tolerance standpoint. But regardless, how do you go about and get that started, right? How do you go about and, and build exposure in Thailand, in Colombia, in Indonesia? How do you do that? So we, we walked through that process a little bit today, and I found it quite interesting. Um, quick announcement. I have my annual conference coming up on January 21st and 22nd in Vancouver, British Columbia. It is the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, an absolute behemoth of an event. It's two days. I have six stages, uh, 57 different keynote speeches, panel discussions, and debates, over 120 public company presentations, and over 240 uh, investment opportunities in the trade show marketplace, and, and probably about 6,000 investors walking through the front door. I'd love you to join us. It's a ton of fun. Everything commodities. If you want to uh, make commodities a focus in your portfolio in 2024, you can't afford to miss the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Go to cambridgehouse.com to uh, register for tickets. And if you want to do the show in style, check out our VIP passes, limited capacity, but we do have a few left. The VIP gets you access to the best seats in the house in the main speaker hall. It gets you access to the exclusive keynote speakers uh, cocktail party on, on the January 21st evening. It gets you the uh, private breakfast with myself and a couple other keynote speakers on Monday morning, January 22nd, hosted lunches, cool stuff, yeah free subscription to my newsletter, a bunch of stuff in there. So check out cambridgehouse.com, either for general admission tickets, get you everything, or VIP for the uh, insider's pass. Uh, here is Dr. Mark Faber. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Dr. Mark Faber, the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. Mark, it's great to have you on the program. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me and uh, good day to all your viewers and uh, happy and prosperous new year and healthy. <laughs> I appreciate that. Right, right back at you. So here's where I like to start. I like to start with a bit of a uh, overview of where you're allocating cash right now, what your portfolio looks like, because that gives me a lot to then pull on and we can discuss our macro yes. viewpoints based on, you know, putting our money where our mouth is. So walk me, walk my audience through uh, where you're allocating capital right now, where you are looking for opportunity, whether you're playing offense or defense. 
Well, I have to give you some background. I mean, I was born in Switzerland and I'm a Swiss and I'm patriotic Swiss, so uh, nationalistic Swiss, uh, right wing. And uh, I've lived in Asia since 1973 and I started to work in 1970 in the US. So I have a very international background and uh, I visited a, a large number of countries in all on all continents. And I became interested in Latin America already in the 1980s when Latin America was very depressed. And uh, I'm interested in economic history and I studied financial markets for a very long time. So my portfolio may not be representative of the typical American investor's portfolio. I'm very diversified and I have some investments in Europe, notably in Switzerland and some investments uh, in uh, Asia and in Latin America and other emerging markets. So I'm very diversified. I also have a property portfolio, which is held partially in real estate uh, assets in Switzerland and in uh, Thailand. And uh, I also have uh, physical precious metals and the bonds and stocks. So this is the allocation. I'm very widely diversified in terms of in Asia I have stocks, in Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and uh, Thailand, of course, where I live. And I can go into the details why the portfolio is structured in such a way. Yeah, let's start with the geographic distribution then, because as you mentioned in your opener, you were on to Latin America early. It sounds like now you're quite bullish, bro broadly speaking, on Asia or, or Southeast Asia, maybe. Uh, I'd love you to dive into that. So so macro, geographically, why are you distributed where you are right now? <laughs> yes. Sometimes I also ask myself the same question. <laughs> uh, I have to explain uh, that uh, I believe uh, the environment geopolitically could deteriorate to such an extent in the years to come, uh, whereby it is uh, of advantage to have an account where you live and investment. So, for instance, in future, it may not be possible to transfer money from one country to another. This existed, this condition for many years. When I started to work in Taiwan and uh, South Korea in the 70s, uh, Taiwanese people could not remit money to, uh, to foreign countries except for trade. And so that may happen again. So I have a portfolio of uh, Thai assets, both real estate. The real estate is written off uh, for me because it's in the name of my wife. You never know in life. So, yeah. but the, the stock portfolio is in my name. And uh, I have also assets in Vietnam that I forgot to mention before. So the reason why I have accounts and assets in the country I live is because I'm concerned about the future in terms of uh, money transfers. And I think it is possible that as we had in the past, there are foreign exchange controls. 
the other consideration is obviously uh, I don't want to have a huge exposure only uh, to Europe and to Asia because if we look at the distribution of potential war zones, war theaters, uh, we have one war now in Ukraine, which is essentially a war between the U.S., uh, neocons in the U.S. against uh, Putin, because they happen to not like him. And then we have a war in the Middle East. And th the war in the Middle East is a very complex matter. The Ukraine war can be solved through negotiations. But the Middle Eastern war is very difficult because so many different parties are involved. Mm. And it could escalate very easily. And then there is the third possibility, and some friends of mine believe that the U.S. wants to war with China on the basis that it's better to have a war with China now than in 10 years' time when China is even more powerful. So these are the considerations that I have also assets in Latin America, and I also have assets in Latin America because not only because it's outside of the main war zones that could occur in future, but because assets are inexpensive. I mean, mm -hmm. Brazil was very cheap six months ago. Petrobras was at ten nine nine or ten dollars. Now it's fifteen, so it's fifty percent in six months. But it's still a relatively depressed stock compared to, uh, relative to to fang stocks in the u.s and to the magnificent seven in the u.s everything is cheap in the world you understand but Relative. emerging markets have underperformed the u.s the s p and especially the nasdaq since 2015 some since 2010 so I see an opportunity to buy near lows in Latin America. Uh, the country I like actually at uh, best at the present time is Colombia. Okay. Because Brazil had already a big move and also Argentina. And uh, the other area which is very cheap is uh, Hong Kong, China. Hong Kong I mean, I've lived in Hong Kong since 73 and still have an office there, although I reside in Thailand, in the north, in Chiang Mai. But uh, for the first time, I've seen in Hong Kong an extremely negative sentiment among everyone. And the property stocks are selling at about a 70% discount to asset value. Now, I concede that the asset value will come down because the property market is weak and will likely weaken further, but maybe not as much as the market has discounted. Uh, you understand, stocks uh, of property companies and gold miners, they are sometimes at a premium mm -hmm. to the physical price. And sometimes they go to a discount, like a closed-end fund trades at the premium when people are very optimistic and at the deep discount when people are 
or investors are very pessimistic. And now the property stocks in Hong Kong are trading at huge discounts. And some, and this is a very big difference between property companies in Hong Kong and Singapore and property companies in the Western world, some property companies have zero debts. Zero. And so they can weather a significant downturn in prices, although I don't think that it will be that significant. Hong Kong is changing its character. It will lose its, uh, to some extent, but not entirely, its international status that it had and become an important city within the GBA, the Greater Bay Area around Guangdong province, including Hong Kong, Macau, mm -hmm. and of course within China, because it's still an exciting city and uh, it is a very efficient city. Now, I With want low to... taxation, low taxation. <laughs> yes, that, that's important. So, okay, so uh, a couple threads I want to pull on there. Uh, Dr. Faber. So let's start with the the potential of a third war. You mentioned the the possibility of a third war directly between US and China. So no more proxy wars, but direct combat, whatever that might look like, hot war or an escalation of some economic warfare. Um, and you said uh, that it's in the United States' best interest to have that war sooner than later because uh the balance of power is going to shift in china's favor uh, down the road right it's better to to pick the fight now before china is stronger the counterpoint to that that i would hear most often would be china's demographics are a mess um yes the united states and every country has a lot of debt issues but china has some of the worst and in fact china's probably as strong as they're going to be uh, right now, unless they do something drastic, and it's in fact in China's best interest to strike now while they're at their peak and, and and initiate that combat today, as opposed to waiting until their demographics are worse and their debt problems are worse, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you have an opposite viewpoint there. So I'd love you to unpack that for me. Uh, I didn't say it was my view. I said uh, some observers think that a war the neocons in the US may think that a war now is more desirable than later. Yeah. Number two, uh, this is true that the demographics in China don't look particularly good. But there is some debate about whether they look as bad as the projections mm. uh, estimate. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yeah. The view is that, say, within 20 to 50 years, the population will be cut in half. That is a very, uh, there is a big unknown. We don't mm. know exactly. The population will not grow, and I think it will contract, but maybe not as much as the estimates are. That uh, demographics of Western Europe and white America, I'm talking about white America, the people that work, the people that invented stuff, the people that uh, drove economic growth in the 19th century, and economic growth measured by GDP per capita 
grew in the 19th century in America more than in the 20th century because in the 19th century America didn't have meaningful economies and uh, racial officers and so forth and so on and they did not have the federal reserve the federal reserve is basically a socialistic institution that financed deficits and the deficits in the u.s are used mostly for unproductive investments uh, namely transfer payments to people subsidizing people in china the deficits if they occur the china doesn't have a large fiscal deficit they are to build infrastructure and modernize the country and all the critics about china they miss one point china was dirt poor in 1970 it consumed two percent in 1970 of all global industrial commodities produced now it consumes approximately 50 percent of industrial commodities in the world it produces more cement than the entire combined world outside china together the achievements that have occurred in china are unprecedented in history in such a short period of time and that the speed bump would occur at some point it was inevitable now we have it with the property market and we have also shadow banking problems and so forth and so on but in my opinion the u.s they had after 1873 a depression and by the end of the 19th century all canal companies went bankrupt all of them including the very best the erie canal company and 95 percent of railroads had to be restructured but at least the u.s had the transportation network that allowed industrial production to occur in houston and san francisco and in los angeles and in detroit and in denver and 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 if you look at most countries nowadays the industrial production is concentrated in a cluster of industries but this is not in china they have in each province industrial production so i'm aware of the western media dislike of china and they continuously attack china about everything but the reality is that china hasn't done anything terribly wrong that others didn't do as well they have stolen in in intellectual property uh, properties from the western nations that undoubtedly but the u.s did precisely that in the 19th century they stole every invention that england made and brought it to america mm. this is the reality yeah, and that's that's always been the case as far as I understand the transition of power, you know, that the Dutch stole shipbuilding competency from the Spanish uh, the, and the British from the Dutch and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it makes logical <laughs> sense. I want to pull out one more thread uh, from your 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 earlier statement. So you, you talked about your concern. So you mentioned you have a lot of assets close to home, Thailand, Vietnam, Asia. 
You said the reason was you're concerned about cross-border transactions for civilians, the ability to move money across borders, and the likelihood of foreign exchange controls. Um, so I'd love to unpack that next with you a little bit. And, um, you know, I think you could see this beginning to play out with uh, events like Russia being quick kicked out of the SWIFT system, having $600 billion of USD reserves essentially confiscated. And you could look at that event and say, oh, that was a directly tied to their invasion of Ukraine. This was just a retaliation. But, you know, once that door's open, right, you know, the, the trajectory is in motion. And you always wonder what's next because, you know, uh, confiscating the first bucket of USD reserves is going to be the hardest for the world to swallow. The second time will be much easier. Walk me through your your thesis for foreign exchange controls. What would have to happen for that to become a reality and what that means? Well, uh, in a war, it may happen. And number two, the foreigners hold a large chunk of U.S. assets. And uh, the U.S. faced with a weak U.S. dollar could one day declare that uh, remittances from the U.S. to foreign countries are limited. It's possible. I'm not. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it will happen, but as an international investor, I have an exposure to the U.S. by owning U.S. dollars. In fact. Uh, aside from gold, it may be my largest currency exposure, the U.S. dollar. But I don't own any assets in America to speak of. Mm. And uh, I have to explain, having lived in Hong Kong since 73, I became interested in emerging markets early on because in the 60s and 70s, the money flowed from Asia to America from Taiwan to America, from Hong Kong to America, and the wealthy Chinese, having uh, gone through the communist years in China, the breakdown of uh, the nationalist state in 1949, and the takeover of the communists, they wanted to have money in a safe place. But starting with the 80s, money started to flow from Europe into Asia. Actually, it had started the British institutions and Scottish trusts, they invested already in the 60s and 70s in Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia because other stock exchanges didn't exist. But as other exchanges uh, opened up, in the case of China, in I think 1978 or 79, but Indonesia opened like in 86, Mm -hmm. And India opened the country for limited investments around 1990. So opportunities arose. And that I want to point out because a lot of young people say, well, Mark, you've been lucky to go to Asia when it was still as, you know, insignificant economically. Nowadays, uh, Asia offers many more opportunities than when I went there. And I was fortunate I had some uh, partners with whom we invested, started to invest in Vietnam in 1990. And as a result of that, I've been involved in real estate in uh, in uh, Vietnam, and we built several hotels, among others, uh, the hotel in um, Hoi An, 
at the present time, which is now owned by Four Seasons or managed by Four Seasons. And we built also the Hyatt in uh, Danang and others uh, hotels. Anyway, the, the point is my investments were structured according to opportunities. And I went in the 80s to Latin America because Asia had become expensive by 86, 87. But in Latin America, the markets were terribly depressed because of high inflation and the currency had collapsed and so forth. So I started to invest in Latin America. And uh, the high inflation countries offer from time to time outstanding investment opportunities because the currency collapse exceeds the appreciation of the stock market in local currency. And then internationally measured, measured in dollars, stocks become very cheap. So for instance, for two years, end of 2021, I invested in Turkey because uh, the stock market was very cheap as a result of the inflation and the currency collapse. And all my Turkish readers says, Mark, you're crazy. It will never go up. It's the disaster. But no, uh, Turkey has still an inflation of around 100%. And stocks in 2022 were up 100%. So you have to look at where is something cheap. And I identified several cheap markets, uh, Colombia, among others, and Hong Kong, Thailand is reasonably cheap. Uzbekistan is very cheap. And uh, Iraq is cheap. So for... Talk to an investor right now, maybe myself. I've got great exposure close to home, uh, stocks, real estate. Um, and so in line with your have assets close to home thesis, I feel fairly well covered. Simultaneously, I've got a young family right now and we are building optionality abroad. I've been focused on Indonesia. Uh, for a handful of reasons, more than just the, the economic conditions. It's a great place for my kids. My wife loves it. I love it, all this stuff. So we're going back to Indonesia in, in about a month for a good period, part of the year. But if somebody- Where, where about? Uluwatu. Where about? Uluwatu. I am. Uluwatu, yeah, in, in the South. Uh, and I'm curious about real estate opportunities there, to, to be honest, because I see a lot of rapid growth and interest. But anyways- if somebody yes. was looking to increase their exposure abroad, you mentioned Colombia, Hong Kong, Thailand, what would some steps that they could take, right? And, you know, they're, they're savvy investor, not incredibly wealthy, but they have some cash to put to work. Uh, how would you recommend somebody get started today if they're based in the US and they want to increase their exposure in some emerging markets? I'm frequently asked where uh, people should live and move to and so forth. I always tell them, you have to go yourself to these countries and look around whether you like it or not. Uh, you understand? If the issue is uh, you want to build a second home somewhere or have investments somewhere, the best is to have some own experience and travel to these countries. It's like you went to Indonesia and you liked it and maybe your wife is Indonesia, I don't know. But uh, 
there must I don't think you can be a very successful international investor without having traveled to these countries. And I agree with you, Indonesia. I think Indonesia is very inexpensive compared to India. India is now in the limelight, but it has also some problems and the valuations are very high. As a result, for instance, in uh, Indonesia, you have Indofood. As an example, uh, the stock yields about, uh, dividend yields about 4% and sells at maybe 12 times earnings or something like this. And is one of the leading or at least the leading noodle manufacturer in the whole world. Hmm. Yes, this is a huge group. Government connection and so forth, but nonetheless, a huge group. The tobacco companies are very cheap and so forth. And some banks are not ex terribly expensive. The country actually, as you know, has a great potential because it is underrated compared to India. Mm. Uh, similar, Malaysia is not a very dynamic economy, but it's economically stable, although the government change, changes all the time, but nothing changes. <laughs> I ask a Malaysian a friend of mine, what do you think about the new government? He says it doesn't matter. <laughs> mm. But the valuations are not expensive. And uh, so each country has some... Uh, I think what I want to say also is in the, we had wonderful years or indices, the S&P, the NASDAQ and so forth, between 1981, 82, it was the low in the market in August in the US, Dow Jones below 800, no higher than 16 years earlier in 66. But uh, after that, we had a bull, bull market in assets in asset inflation, everything, uh, diamond prices, gold prices, uh, all the commodities and collectibles, paintings and so forth. Now that is probably over because the interest rates are rising. But from now on, you have more a stock pickers market. 80% of fund managers have underperformed the index. But now it will be easier to outperform the index because the index is heavily weighted by Apple, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Netflix, and Google, and so forth, Microsoft. And uh, so I think these major stocks, these magnificent seven, the Fang stocks plus, are going to go down and other sectors will go up. But in the initial phases of the market weakness, the other sectors may be pulled down somewhat. So I need to ask what the other sectors are you think are most interesting right now if we are entering this transition in the markets where the FANG stocks have outperformed for long enough and will probably flatline or depreciate. What's going to take the place of favor in the investor's mind and sentiment? Well, I, I think that uh, if you look at the world, 
real assets have underperformed financial assets for a long time. And uh, some commodities have underperformed uh, financial assets for a long time. Agricultural commodities are low. They're low not only against financial assets, they're also low compared to gold. Mm -hmm. I'm a large holder of gold. I have 25% of my assets in gold, silver, platinum. But uh, I, I think that other commodities are more attractive. It's just that for me, it's difficult to store 100 tons of oil because I don't have the storage facility, you understand? So for the convenience, it's easier to, for me to store gold. But uh, also real estate, you have, if you look at real estate, real estate is expensive in Europe, in London, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Zurich, uh, Munich, Berlin, Paris, and you go an hour outside these cities into the countryside, real estate is very inexpensive. You go to Italy, Spain, Portugal, Sicily, uh, Croatia, Macedonia, and so forth, uh, the Balkan countries, you can buy real estate for next to nothing in the countryside. So these are cheap assets. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you were to construct a portfolio today for, <clears throat> let's think forward. It's the twenty. It's twenty thirty. We've just woken up. New Year's Day. We're reflecting on the investment decisions we made in twenty twenty four. If you can get as specific as possible with me, and, and I'd love you to speak to. Um, sectors and opportunities that are available maybe through North American equities, which is the balance of my audience. That's what they invest in and have access to. Uh, building a hotel in Columbia is a bit more of a stretch. So this year, let's let's think about North American equities. You want to be positioned accordingly today so that you're you're adding a zero to your net worth by 2030 or a couple of zeros. Where do you look? Do you look at, you mentioned real assets have been undervalued. So you're looking at commodity producers getting more granular. Are you looking at mining companies or agricultural companies or energy companies specifically? Uh, where strikes you as the most opportune right now, Mark? Well, uh, the question is a bit difficult to answer because as you know, the VIX index that measures volatility of the S&P is very low at the present time. It's moved up in the last two, three days, but it's basically very low or has been very low. But there is huge volatility in the market in individual sectors. I mean, you take the banks. Three months ago, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and especially Citibank, Citigroup were about to break down. Okay. Now, in two months, they rallied about 30%. So I can give you some stocks that may rally in the next three months, but in uh, six years' time, they may be lower or higher. I would, in general, say one thing about the US. A, the economy is not as strong as the government is lying to the public all the time and repeatedly. 
the Biden administration is the worst liar of any administration we had in the US. Number two, the government state is so large and the unfunded liabilities are so large and the interest expense on the government debt is moving up so rapidly that the government has only two options. Either increase taxation massively. They will not do that, especially not ahead of an election mm -hmm. and especially not uh, after the election because it would kill the economy. The second option is to default. I discussed this on the uh, on the side by mentioning uh, foreign exchange controls. It could also lead. Uh, we could also have a default on the debt, but it's very messy. The easiest is to tax people through inflation. Inflation is a tax that arises when the spending of a government exceeds the tax revenues. That is the additional tax. And uh, this tax, in my opinion, will go up dramatically as time goes by. Uh, we may have six months now of benign inflation figures as we had after 1969 and after 1974 and after 78 and thereafter inflation went up again. Mm -hmm. Inflation was not steady upward move in the 70s. It moved up and down and up and down, as did interest rates. And my view is that the government in the US, the only option is to print money. Only option. And as you describe that, you know, the, the inflation rate moves up and down, but prices tend to just move up because whether prices are inflating, if we're talking about consumer price inflation, as a consequence of monetary inflation, I, I suppose. But, you know, if the price of grain is inflating at 8% one year and then 4% the next, it's, it's still a year over year annual net increase. It's just increasing at different speeds, which is the <clears throat> less talked about symptom of inflation is that we can bring inflation down, but prices have already inflated to where they are at. <coughs> They're just not increasing as rapidly anymore. Correct? Well, the, 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 the symptoms of inflation is any price that goes up. When you print money, which is a, the principal cause of inflation, uh, the viciousness of inflation is that not all the prices and wages go up at the same rate. So let's uh, envision a big room. Prices can go up in one corner of the room and in other corners it can even deflate or be the same. Mm. I give you an example. In the US, uh, residential real estate prices have gone up dramatically in the last few years. They are much higher also in Canada than they were in 2007 in the last bubble peak, much higher. Mm -hmm. But commercial property prices, we had three examples in San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles, they're down 45 to 50% from the peak. 
Right. It shows that inflation, the viciousness of inflation, is that it occurs in different sectors of the economy at different times, and it hurts mostly poor people and the middle class. The rich people benefit from inflation. I benefited from the increase in interest rates because in my business, I have large cash. Now, instead of getting next to zero interest, I get 5%. Mm -hmm. In some cases, 6% on a deposit. Mm -hmm. Okay, Not that deposits are safe, but uh, the point is, uh, what you said is, of course, correct. When the price of wheat comes down and corn and so forth, the price of cornflakes don't go down. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. All and right. the second point I want to make, that the government is constantly abusing. Say, we have an increase in prices of 25% since COVID, okay? 25% mm -hmm. up. Then, in the third year, prices are stable. In other words, there's uh, no price increases. What happens is that the inflation rate, which is measured like annually, comes down dramatically. The Fed then goes and says, we brought down inflation. We can now print again money and cut interest rates. When the fact is that the price level is still 25% higher than it had been three years ago. Yes. Or actually more than 25% higher because insurance premiums are going up and taxes are going up. Everything is going up. And in this situation, real incomes go down. In, in other words, inflation-adjusted incomes, yep. the, the true cost of living increase exceeds your wage increase. Yep. The government, of course, misleads the public with publishing statistics that are completely massaged and doctored and false, that give the impression that inflation is lower than it is actually. Mark, the government if, officials are a, a, is a vicious organization, worse than the mafia. <laughs> because in the mafia, people kept their words. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Uh, Mark, if anybody wants to find more of your work, gloomboomdoom.com, <laughs> www.gloomboomdoom.com. I what don't think it? anyone wants to find it. <laughs> well, what would they find there? Should they visit gloomboomdoom? They can go on the website, gloomboomdoom.com, or send me an email. <laughs> All right. All right. Look, Mark, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing some insights with me and where you're putting cash and why I'd love to know. Um, and, um, and love to do it again sometime. Thank you. Yes. I just want to add one point. Yeah, please. You ask about 2030 and the results. I, I'd like to say, don't even try to know what uh, will be near 2030. My view is that the environment will be more difficult than it is now. The question is, how do I lose the least money? That is what investors should ask themselves. Mm -hmm. How do I avoid 
the government, after they locked me in for six months or a year, how do I avoid do I avoid the government taking my money away? That is the question that I would ask myself. Mm. Capital preservation. That's a that's defense. Yes, I suppose the government of Indonesia will not take people's money away because the wealthy people <laughs> run the country. <laughs> yeah, it will be a, a difficult task. I mean, you know, a couple of things yes. that make me bullish on on Indo is they, they'd have some very savvy immigration incentives to attract affluent um internationals to the country and so their immigration policy is aggressive but highly strategic you know they're attracting producers to the country um and and i like that i like that uh in, in addition yeah, i think sure. you know they're massive commodity exporter they've got decent economic activity world's largest nickel exporter for example and i think president widodo has been quite smart with that you know he, he hasn't gone and i don't believe gone gotten greedy with that and imposed super taxes or nationalized projects but what he has done is increase the build out of the supply chain in country and so indo no yeah, longer sure. he's done a very good job mm. he's done a very good job interesting okay well i, I like that affirmation it's good because we're heading back there in about a month. <laughs> and uh, and I love okay, it. Okay, enjoy your uh, stay. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks again. My pleasure. Bye-bye, Jay. Bye-bye. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.